Isn't it wonderful to use our voices to praise God? Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word, but Martha was distracted with all her preparations. She came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. The Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. Only a few things are needed, really only one. For as Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. On Saturday, June the 25th, two very different activities took place simultaneously in this church building. You remember that was the day in which we had our monthly 12-hour prayer advance. I had the first hour, 7 to 8 o'clock. I had a little bit longer because I didn't hear the doorbell when the brigade rang the doorbell, and I thought, well, those rascals just aren't going to show up. So I prayed another 45 minutes, found out they were outside praying in their car because I didn't hear the doorbell, (laughs) and they forgave me. But anyway, it became then my responsibility until middle afternoon to serve as security because when we have this uh, prayer advance, we do not want a situation where we might have a single woman in the building alone because of the risks that exist in the neighborhood. So I served as security from uh, 8 o'clock, more or less, till about 2.30 in the afternoon. Now I started by having my position in the conference room and listening to the doorbell. And then as the traffic started increasing in and out the door, I moved to Debbie's desk where I could watch through the glass. And then as the traffic increased, I finally took my computer and moved up to the door and just unlocked the door and sat there and monitored who was coming and going. Now the reason for all of that traffic was at the same time that the prayer advance was taking place, a horde of people had come to the building to prepare for vacation Bible school. As a matter of fact, as I looked at this thing, the only thing I could think about was an anthill with a horde of ants just busy doing everything. Noisy, excited, jabbering, much much happening. Uh, I, uh, Charlene and Dawn were across uh, on the other side of the steps and I heard them over, uh, overheard them doing their planning and who fits here and who fits there and what if this happens? How can we move this person to hell? It, it was an intense time uh, going on. And yet down the other end of the hall, something totally different was taking place. A room of quietness, a room of reflection, a room of prayer. Now as I found myself in this situation and began to think about these two somewhat disparate events taking place, I began to reflect upon the scene that was our text this morning, the story of Mary and Martha and Jesus. As I thought about these two seemingly contradictory events, I began asking myself, 
For those folks in the prayer room, Mary's, <laughs> had they chosen the better part? Were the VBS workers all Marthas who were concerned about many things and not choosing the better part? <laughs> what about that? Well, it's out of that of experience and frankly meditating upon this passage ever since that the talk this morning was born. Jesus was about midway through the third year of his ministry when this episode took place. He had been involved in a very intense ministry in Galilee, moving from city to city, vast crowds following him every place he went. His teaching was anointed. They said, we never heard a man talk like this before. He speaks with authority. Not only that, it seemed that every place he went, they brought the sick and the infirm, and healings took place, and people glorified God. He sent the 70 out on a mission trip, and they came back and gave the report. And the apex of that particular era of the Galilean ministry was the feeding of the 5,000. After Jesus fed the 5,000, shortly thereafter, he began to put an end to that particular phase of his ministry in Galilee, and began to travel south to Jerusalem, planning to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so he arrived in Bethany. Now, Bethany would be similar to our saying, Jinx or Broken Arrow or Sepulp or Sand Springs. It was very close to Jerusalem. And throughout the coming months, from that point on, this became Jesus' headquarters any time he was in Jerusalem. But this was the first time. As far as the record goes, this is the first time Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had ever met Jesus. Now, they may have met him before, but there is no record of such. And so he came to Bethany, and certainly, as would have been true everywhere else, he was traveling with his disciples. There always was a crowd. And as he came to Bethany, we don't know if he said to Mary or Martha like he did with Zacchaeus, uh, I'm coming to your house today. Or Martha approached him and said, come into my house today. But we do know that whatever the scenario was that caused the occasion to take place, Martha welcomed him into the house. And then things began to happen. The incident of which we read in our scripture this morning. So what are we to make of this episode? How would he understand Jesus' comment to Martha? Do we see some kind of a pattern here, or perhaps a hierarchy of worth in the kingdom? Is there something here that might guide us in our efforts to please God? This morning, we're going to spend a few moments thinking about this episode and what we might learn from it. I have to admit, as I thought about Martha, I had to avoid a temptation that's very common to those who teach the Bible, and that is this, to assign to Martha motives that the Bible does not assign to her. And that's always a temptation, especially when you're trying to make Bible characters human. You want to read into the text what really isn't there. For example, as I thought about Martha, I could not avoid thinking about the uh, British comedy series, Keeping Up Appearances. I'm sure some of you have seen that. The, the main characters are Hyacinth Bucket 
and her poor husband, Richard Bucket. Now, Hyacinth, wanting to have some kind of social status in the community, wants to hide the fact that her mother is who she is, and her sister and brother-in-law, and she has decided that the name Bucket really should be pronounced Bouquet. And so when you call the home, she answers, Bouquet residence, lady of the house is speaking. Uh, she does everything she can in this small British village where really her background makes her nothing to be somebody. I wonder, is that what was going on with Martha? I had an, a, a relative, a lady, uh, who grew up in a very small town, seven children. The father was owned by alcohol. And their whole life was really a life of poverty and struggle. The children with sticks and stones would chase rabbits and kill them at times so they would have something to eat. It was a very desperate time. The lady finally left there, was able by working her way through school, became the secretary of the president of the Midland Valley Railroad, and finally married an Oklahoma businessman who wasn't wealthy but still a man of comfortable means. And he owned a Willis Knight. Now, if you don't know what a Willis Knight is, a Willis Knight was the car that high society drove in the 1920s. Willis Knight might be equivalent, shall we say, to a Rolls Royce. And so this lady would drive this Willis Knight back to her hometown where her family was known as a family of poverty, a family on which the society of that little town looked down and they had to experience that when they went to school. So she drove to town in this Willis Knight dressed exactly as a proper lady should with a little hat on her head. And she would drive around town so everybody would see her. Every occasion she had, go to the store, anywhere, just to drive the Willis Knight so people would see her and think, she's now somebody. <laughs> Frankly, it's hard to resist the temptation to see that motive in Martha. But the Bible does not ascribe that kind of a motive to her. There's another motive that I was tempted to ascribe to Martha, and that is that she found her self-esteem in perfection and the things that she did. Let me tell you a story about myself, and I only tell it because I think it makes the point. When I went to seminary, we had a family, and I went to school 16 hours a week, and I worked for a chemical company. And my third month in school, I also became the minister of a little congregation 38 miles outside of Cincinnati. So I had three sort of full-time activities. And I was always obsessed with being the top student in class. I just couldn't stand it if anybody outdid me. And so I slept four hours a night and, and did everything I could to always achieve. One time I went three days without going to bed and I had a pen I pricked myself with to stay awake. I was working on a paper on the canonistic, the Apocrypha. And I was driven and I was driven. But you see, I, here's what I said to myself. Jim Garrett, you love Jesus with all your heart. Jim Garrett, you want to be the most prepared servant God has ever had. But I later realized that was just a bunch of baloney. <laughs> it was pure ego. And I could not stand it if somebody made a better grade than I did, if, some, if, if, the, I, if my, the teacher always read my research papers of the class, and I couldn't stand it if perhaps he didn't. You see, my, my worth was tied in my achievement. 
My worth was tied in doing perfect work. My worth was, my worth was tied to never missing a question on a test. That's ungodly. You see, it's, I'm tempted to assign that kind of a motive to Martha. Her esteem, her self-worth was found in the kind of banquet, the kind of dinner, the, the perfect hostess in this situation. But I must not apply that motive to Martha because the Scripture does not apply that motive to Martha. The Scripture tells us we should not judge one another. We need to be careful to not slander one another. I think we need to practice the same thing as far as biblical characters are concerned. They're not around to defend themselves. So we need to be careful sometimes in assigning motives. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Judge not, lest you be judged by the same judgment. But then as you read the rest of it, what he's saying is self-righteous judgment. I think I'm perfect and I see something wrong with you, but I can't see my own flaw. And in Scripture, we're urged to judge behavior, judge words, judge doctrine. But one thing we cannot judge is someone else's motive and someone else's heart. We need to remember that, brothers and sisters. Romans 14 talks about the fact we must not judge one another in matters that are not clearly sin and not clearly right and this falls into that same category we must not judge one another's motives and hearts but does this episode teach us that in the hierarchy of kingdom values that sitting at the feet of Jesus is superior to deeds done in his behalf and what about trying to do things with excellence? Does this episode have anything to say about that? One of the hot topics of contemporary Christianity is spiritual formation. As a matter of fact, some seminaries are actually offering classes in spiritual formation. I've been a guest lecturer in two of those courses at, at ORU. But unfortunately... As what so often happens, when something starts that is good, there are those who will take an aspect of that and push it beyond what is an appropriate emphasis. And that's happened in this movement. Among some, prayer and meditation are valued above deeds. A hierarchy has been created. The episode involving Mary, Martha, and Jesus, some say, here's the evidence that sitting at the feet of Jesus is superior to doing deeds in the kingdom of God. Well, I don't think that holds water. <laughs> Read the life of Jesus. Did you ever encounter somebody who did more deeds? Constantly going. Read the life of Paul. Here you find a man who was just constantly on the go and doing and doing and doing, and doing. Concerning deeds, listen to some, what I think are significant statements of Scripture. James 1.27 Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. Deeds. For we are His workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Hebrews 13.16 Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men. Colossians 3.23 Here's a good one. One of you says, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. God bless you. Yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> you know, frankly, I think some people use prayer as an excuse for laziness. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. And then what about the Great Commission? Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Go, ye therefore, make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Go do, Jesus said. Now here's a rather lengthy passage, but this is strong. When the, this is uh, Matthew 25, 31 and following. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right, the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. In prison, you came to me. And the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, ye accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't take care of you? And he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now think about this. I've tried to recall and can't. Maybe you have a superior memory to mine. But I cannot recall a single verse of Scripture that refers to someone's being damned for failing to pray and not spending enough time in meditation or failing to quietly read the Scripture. I cannot think of a single verse like that. Yet, there are many passages that speak condemnation for evil deeds 
failure to do good deeds when the opportunity is in front of us and we have the means to do so. Something is desperately wrong when we create a hierarchy that says prayer and meditation and sitting at the feet of Jesus is more valuable in the kingdom of God than doing godly deeds. Yet, <laughs> Scripture is filled with exhortations to believers to cultivate a rich prayer life and study the Scripture. You know, often the Gospels re record us that in the midst of very intense activity, Jesus would steal away to pray. Not only that, we have at least two occasions in which as he was facing a tremendous challenge the next day, he stayed up all night and prayed. Every place he went, Jesus gave the model, model of praying and going before the Father, even teaching people how to pray. If you read the text, uh, the chapters immediately before our text today, you will find Jesus time and again pulling aside to pray in the midst of everything that was taking place. Here are some verses for us. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Colossians 4, 2, and 3. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open us up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Colossians 1, 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of the Lord Jesus, praying always for you. Colossians 1, 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. 2 Corinthians 1, 11, You also in joining and helping us through your prayers. Isn't that something? Here you have Paul going out, doing the work that Jesus has commissioned him to do, and Jesus even appearing to him and speaking to him, and yet he says, You're helping me by your prayers. How is that possible? Don't ask me. <laughs> but indeed it is so. Paul urged in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, Brethren, pray for us. Summary, let's say that in the Scripture, deeds are commanded, deeds are rewarded, evil deeds are condemned, and failure to uh, perform good deeds when we have the opportunity and the means, that too is condemned in Scripture. But on the other hand, the New Testament is filled, filled with exhortations to prayer, models of prayer, and requests of prayer. I don't think we can make any kind of a hierarchy as to whether prayer or deeds are most important. So what are we to make of Mary, Martha, and Jesus in this episode? The lessons in this episode are twofold. Number one, Attitude, number two, priorities. What Martha was doing and serving wasn't wrong. As a matter of fact, in John 12, where we find a few months later, they had another banquet for Jesus, and John wrote, and Martha served. That's just who she was. 
when it was time to do something, when someone needed to serve. That's what Martha did. It was, that was the, where her gifts flourished in her life. So there was nothing wrong with what she was doing, but there was something wrong with it. She had the wrong attitude. One of the gifts that Paul lists in Romans 12, the spiritual gifts given to believers, is the gift of helps. People with the gift of helps, some of us would use a phrase saying they have a servant's heart. And it's interesting that there's a downside to that gift. Because those who have the gift of helps and those who have a servant's heart often end up serving and serving and serving and nobody else is taking up part of the load, and after a while, resentment often rises in the hearts of those with the gift of helps. That's what happened with Martha. She came to Jesus and even rebuked him. <laughs> My sister's sitting here, and, and I'm carrying the whole load. Lord, uh, uh, tell her to help me. <laughs> it's interesting that the Greek word translated help me is which has the idea of picking it up with me. In other words, I've got this end of the log. Tell Mary to pick her end of the load up. Uh, she's not doing her part. So Martha really displayed here a very common attitude that often rises among those who have the gift of helps. And resentment is born. A number of years ago, I had an associate minister, Kim May. Kim was an ORU graduate and uh, about 30 years of age, maybe a little younger. One day, we needed something picked up from the printer. I think that's what it was. I'm not sure. I've tried to remember what the errand was. I think it was pick something up in the printer. So I drove downtown, and here was the print shop, and I couldn't find a parking place. And I drove and drove and drove, and I finally came back, and I said, boy, Kim is the most frustrating thing. I could not find a parking place. He said, Jim, I've been observing you now these last several days, and you know what? You are very dedicated to doing things for God. You need to learn to do things unto God. And you know that young man spoke wisdom to me on that day. What a difference between doing something for God and doing something unto God. You see the attitude of worship. Paul said, whatever you do, do your work heartily is unto the Lord rather than for men. And here's an interesting one. Peter, writing to elders, wrote this, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Uh, some versions say not grudgingly according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. In other words, elders, we know the task at times is going to be wearisome. We know you're going to have to deal with all kinds of people that an unspiritual man would want to kick in the pants, but you can't do that. And so, let me urge you, have the right attitude in your work as shepherding the sheep. Here's an interesting one. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And First Peter 2.18, servants, 
be submissive to your masters with all respect. And here's the hard part. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. <laughs> now put yourself in that spot. You're a slave. And you don't have any choice as to what job is assigned to you. And here you have a master who is unreasonable and perhaps hard, and he says, go do that job. And you think, man, that's the dirtiest job. I don't want to do it. I hate this job. Peter said, have the right attitude. Have the right attitude in what you're called to do, slaves. So be that as it may, in this episode, Martha displayed the wrong attitude. Second lesson is the lesson of priorities. You know, that comes forth when Jesus said of Mary, she has chosen the good part. Some versions say better part. The Greek says good part. Uh, Martha's work wasn't wrong. Her business wasn't wrong. But the priority of that moment was hearing the word of God. Now, it's interesting in Mary, some versions say she was listening to the word of God, listening to the word of Jesus' word, listening to his word. But the Greek doesn't say listening, it says heard. <laughs> There's a difference, isn't there? You hear somebody, I heard what you said, you see. I, she heard his word, she, she heard it, she was taking it in, she was feasting upon the truths of the kingdom that Jesus would have been speaking in that situation. This was not a normal situation. The priorities may not what they might have been otherwise. The rabbi, the Messiah, as he later came to be known, was in this house, and he was speaking divine revelation concerning the kingdom of God. That should be the priority in this situation, not what kind of a sumptuous banquet can I prepare. It's interesting when, when Martha said, tell her to help me, Martha, Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're troubled by many things. And then again in the Greek it says this, only a few things are needed, really only one. In other words, one dish is enough. You don't need to fix cherry pie. You don't need to fix a broccoli casserole. You don't need to bake a ham and fricassee a chicken. You know, one's enough. He says, just a few things are needed. Really, only one. Just one. So, she had the wrong priority. You know, for those of us who, and I think that's everybody in this room, who try sincerely to serve God, probably the biggest challenge, at least one of the biggest challenges we face in life is the challenge of God's priorities. We have a limited number of years on the earth. We have a limited number of hours in the day. And not only that, there is a limit on our stamina, a limit on our money, and a limit on our strength. So how do we sort out all of this and follow God's priorities? 
a number of things determine priorities. You know, sometimes people come up with these formulas, and here's the thing we follow, blah, 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 or blah, 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 you know. God, family, church. Well, it ought to be God, 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 you know. And how, how does God want it all sorted out? Sometimes this will be the priority. Sometimes that will be the priority. Circumstances. Certainly that was the case before us, the circumstance of Jesus being in the home. And circumstances often determine our priority. Responsibilities. Interesting in, in Acts chapter uh, 6, where the uh, first uh, deacons were chosen, you remember the apostles, when they, the complaint was made, you're not equally distributing the food among the different ethnic groups in the church. The apostles didn't defend themselves. Evidently, they said, well, that's probably right. We're not doing a very good job. Amodi, better be careful there. But they said, pick out seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom that they can look after this so that we might devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That was the responsibility God had given them, prayer and ministry of the word. But taking care of the widows was important. And so others were given that as their priority. So responsibilities and callings may some do always uh, determine much about priorities. Even our jobs. Scripture says a man who will not provide for his own, those of his own family, is worse than an infidel. Our jobs often determine the priorities of our life. But formulas and simple answers really just don't apply. We have to seek God in this circumstance and that circumstance. Now, I've thought about this, about my own life. When I stand before the Lord, when I stand before God... What will he say about the manner in which I have set my priorities? Well, that's a difficult one, isn't it? <laughs> but it is sobering, it is serious, and supremely important. It troubles me, frankly, I have to admit at times when it seems that folks don't really think much about priorities. But is it more important, for example, for me to attend the Sunday service, to encourage my brothers and sisters, or is it more important for me to go to my child's soccer game that the league scheduled that morning and thus affirm my child? Some of us have faced that. We must not judge one another, however, in which we make that decision. Although sometimes I think we do need to stand on principle. I coached baseball for a number of years. My sons will testify to my ineptness. But uh, we had one team that we were just beating everybody. <laughs> and we had a game rained out. And so the league decided to schedule a makeup game on Wednesday night. Now, every church in the neighborhood had Wednesday night prayer meeting, Riverside Baptist, Brookside Baptist, Evangelistic Temple, the Pentecostal Church, the Methodist Church, and our church. And almost all of the boys on this team went to one of these churches, and their families attended Wednesday night prayer meeting. 
And originally the league had agreed we'll schedule no games on Sunday and no games on Wednesday night because we don't want to interfere with church. But here they were going to schedule one on Wednesday night. And I pled with them not to. And they said, we're going to. And I said, then our team forfeits. Now, that was a major decision because that would affect my boys. But our team forfeits because our priority is going to church and to a prayer meeting and not playing ball. And some of you guys think playing ball is the most important thing in the world. You know what? <laughs> they canceled it and rescheduled now, I don't put myself forth as an example, but just what I'm saying is we need to have the courage to make those hard decisions when we're pondering the, the priorities of the kingdom and in this life. But again, we must not judge one another. We know that somebody with sincerity of heart has wrestled with the issue and made a decision. Of course, if someone's priorities clearly violate scriptural precepts, that's another matter. So when we see Mary and Martha and Jesus, they teach this lesson to us. We must be careful and not create inappropriate hierarchies in the kingdom of God. Deeds are important. Prayer, meditation is important. And having the right attitude in everything we do is important. Father, we thank you that you do search our hearts and we cry out for wisdom, God, as we seek to set the priorities in life and live with an attitude that glorifies Jesus. Through our Lord, amen. Thanks, Jim. Let's stand together as we dismiss. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you for your presence in our midst. Thank you for speaking to us from your word. Thank you for the privilege of coming before you in worship and in prayer. We're grateful for these things, Lord. We're grateful for the freedom to do these things. And we're grateful for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are here in our midst. Lord, we ask that as we leave this place this morning, your Holy Spirit would direct and guide us to right priorities in each of our lives. Thank you for this time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed.